Thanks so much, Art. I appreciate that. And uh, it's, it is great being with you uh, uh, this evening, um, talking about obstacles and distractions. Um, do, do, you ever, do you ever plan your life and it just completely does not go the direction that, that you were intending? Uh, when I said yes to doing this time up here at Hume, uh, it was way back in December of last year in January of, of this year. And so they, they sent me the information and I looked at my calendar, wide open. Uh, and so uh, we went ahead and put in the week. I talked to my wife about it. Um, I'm here a lot in the fall. Um, I think I was up here half a dozen times last fall driving up from Long Beach up to Hume. I feel like I could do that drive with my eyes closed sometimes uh, because I, I do it so often. And so I, I just figured this would be great. Get to come up here in the summertime. Haven't gotten to do that since I was in student ministry, so this would be fantastic. And, and then the denomination that I work for um, asked me to also be part of a new workers conference because I train all of the new pastors and new workers in the western region for my denom, um, and I help them in their um, ordination and consecration process that they are going through when they're first coming in, getting licensed, and going through ordination or consecration and all that kind of stuff. I walk them through all of those things, uh, from character to theology and all, those kind of, all that kind of stuff. And so that was a four-day conference in Columbus, Ohio that was this last week. And then... Wouldn't you know it? How dare she? Uh, the eldest member of my church, 71 years at my church, uh, so she, that's older than I am, and so she has been at Long Beach Alliance Church for a very, very long time. She passed away. And uh, so I flew home from Columbus, and the next day I went out to Riverside and buried her, and then uh, we had our celebration of life yesterday. I got to Hume at about I don't know, like 1 o'clock in the morning or something like that? Like 11.58. 11. Uh, okay, I did not get my key until about 1 o'clock. Uh, but Anna here was an absolute rock star. We showed up, and, and they, my packet was not there. And so I couldn't get into my room, and my, mainly my wife couldn't get to sleep. And so... Uh, and so we just started walking around and asking people. And there's a whole there's a whole other camp over there at Meadow Ranch. And they're like, they have no idea. They have no idea what's going on here at Hume. And so we're just stopping all of them because they were the crazies that were out there ringing the bell at one o'clock in the morning. That was them. And um, and so we were asking them, you know, hey, are any of you on staff? And then finally, we found a couple of staffers, and they called Anna. Anna got a hold of Annie. Annie went over. We they put, she pulled Annie out of bed. Annie literally was in bed. Gets pulled out of bed. Goes over to the Welcome Center, gives me my packet, I get, I get into my room, uh, and, and we get all, all set up and that kind of thing. Probably, probably got to bed around 1 o'clock uh, in, the, in the morning, and, and then boom, here we are, here we are today. I planned all of this so well. I had it all set out to where nothing was going to be noisy around this time period. And yet, in the midst of that, isn't it amazing how busy we get and how many things pile on top and how hard it is to get out the front door to come to something and how crazy we become. Uh, and, of course, I'm driving out of Los Angeles, and that's, you know, crazy-inducing as it is. Um, I, all of that to say, uh, arts, prayer, his ideas, his thoughts that lead into this, I think are significant for us. I think they're significant because when I think of 
my relationship with God, I think I, I conceive of it, I think about it one way. Maybe, maybe you do this as well. Maybe you think about good intentions of your relationship with God, but then when it actually works itself out, you, you, you feel like maybe you're limping along. You feel like it's not quite what you thought it could be. You feel like, man, things, things just don't come together quite the way that I was hoping for. I want to take a look at a couple of people in the scriptures that I think this fits, that I think this matches, because I think it's much like our, our lives. You can open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Those of you that are familiar with uh, the book of Genesis, you know that the last chunk of Genesis from 37 pretty much to the end is uh, about the character of Joseph. Uh, I'm going to be taking Joseph, and I'm going to be taking Esther, and I'll be putting, I'm going to use both of them tonight, but I'll be putting different emphases on different nights um, on, on these two characters, because I just think they speak into our lives, and I think that the transition, the changes, the experiences that both Joseph and Esther have in their lives um, are profound, and have taught me a great deal, a great deal about my own relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. We pick up uh, uh, Joseph uh, in chapter 37 of Genesis, right at the very beginning, it says in verse 2 that Joseph was 17 years old, he's pasturing the flock, and he brings back a bad report about his brother. So what do we know about Joseph right away? He's young, and he's a tattletale, right? He, he comes back, and it, it, the word that is used for uh, the report that he brings back is the word that you would, that you would use for uh, a way that you would describe your enemies. He has positioned himself against his brothers, in an adversarial position, and now we're going to pick up the text in verse, verse what? Yes, verse 3. There it is. Verse 3 to 11. Now Israel loved Joseph. Who are we talking about there? Jacob, right? That's Jacob. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of Many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all his brothers, they hated him. I think Joseph and Jacob both, but they were mainly talking about Joseph here. Uh, hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, if you are in an adversarial position to all of your older brothers, you are the youngest brother, you are 17 years old, you, your brother's you are just old enough to smack around at 17, right? Like you, you are just old enough that if you're an older brother and your 17-year-old, 18-year-old little brother is giving you flack, like you take him outside to the shed and kind of smack some sense into him. Joseph knows this. He's, he's been shepherding the flock. He knows, he knows the relationship that he has with his brothers. And rather than try to ease that relationship, Joseph decides to just poke it with a hot poker. Now, Joseph had a dream, it says in verse 5, and when he told it to his who? He goes right at him. I mean to tell you, Joseph goes right to his brothers. They hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose up and stood upright, and all of your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you going to reign over us? Or are you indeed, you see that word indeed there twice, it would be, it would be what we would say, are you being serious? Are you, do you seriously think that that's what's going to happen? They are incredulous with their little brother. 
Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more. You can see it just cranks up. And, and what does Joseph do? Does he back off? Does he kind of read the room? Does he decide, like, maybe I should keep, keep some of this to myself or just talk to dad about it? No! Then he dreamed another dream, verse 9, and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. I'm sure they were delighted. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the same in mind. And that's kind of the dun-dun-dun, you know, where are we going with this? Um, here's Joseph. He, he's, he's 17, 18 years old, uh, maybe, maybe even just a smidge older by the time he tells these dreams that he's been having. He has got a contentious relationship with his brothers. Um, he is favored by his father and spoiled by his father, and, and he's, a, he's a dreamer, and, and his dreams that he shares anyway are always the ones where he has superiority over everyone around him. The, what's the difference in the dreams? What's the difference in the first dream that he has about just his brothers and the second dream that also involves the sun and the moon, which his father obviously properly translated as his mother and father? Well, what do you think the difference is there? Because remember, his mother's going to be dead by the time this happens at the end of the story. I know most of you know that this is all going to come true in the story, and his mother's gone. So what does it mean? What does that actually mean in this context? What do you think? Any thoughts? This is small enough room that I can actually ask questions and wait for answers and that kind of thing. The first one is just simply, I'm going to be dominant over you, my brothers. The second one is, I'm not just dominant over you as my brothers, I'm dominant over our whole family line. Like, I am going to be greater than even our father, even our mother. Like, our line will be bowing down to me. The line that, that runs through our father is going to be beholden to me someday. And that's why his father says, what? Shut up. What is wrong with you? And he rebukes him. Because of this assertion of superiority. And so what do his brothers do? Well, they wait until he comes out, right? Dad sends them out and says, go find your brothers. We don't know where they're at. And so, you know, take them these supplies. So he gets out there, and his brothers see him coming. And one thing leads to another. You can tell, like, one brother shares a little bit. Yeah, we should throw him in a hole. And another brother's like, you know, no, we should, you know, kill him. And, and things just kind of spin out of control. We find out later in the story that, you know, Reuben was going to come back and pull him out because he's the oldest. And, you know, Reuben, the, the, oldest, the oldest few brothers have already, like, they have messed up things horribly. You can go back a couple of chapters and read about all the bad stuff that they, they've done with concubines and, and just, just jacking up the whole family. And so, in some way, Jacob, from, where, from his vantage point, the father... He's able to take the birthright that normally would belong to Reuben, and he could distribute it to any son that he wanted to. Well, which son do you think the brothers think is going to be given that, that birthright? Of course, they all think it's going to be Joseph, and it makes them even more angry because the birthright back then was, was worth a lot. You got, you know, the, the, the son with the birthright got 
two-thirds of the family farm, so to speak, and everybody else had to distribute from the other third. And so this is big stuff. His brothers see him, and eventually they land on throwing him down in a hole, and then they see that caravan going down to Egypt, and they're like, fantastic, we're going to sell him into slavery. Now, when I was growing up, we just called that, like, you know, the providence of God. God just need to get him out of there and get him down to, to, to Egypt. Now I think about this, and I'm like, this, this is the early days of human trafficking right here. This is the early days of taking somebody that you don't care about, that you don't value them as a human being, and just selling them off and putting them into a human trafficked situation. These brothers, 11 brothers, I mean, I did not get along with my sisters. I have two little sisters. I did not get along with them when I was a kid. I never once thought about selling them. I never once thought, I hate you so much, I'm going to sell you to someone else. I'm going to get you off in the forest and leave you there. I, I mean... I just don't, I, I don't have it in me. I, I still love them enough that I was not ever going to conceive of them or, or think of doing something this heinous. This takes him down to Egypt and eventually he is sold and placed into Potiphar's home. Okay, there's our first story. Now I'm going to parallel it. With the book of Esther. If you've got your Bibles, flip them over to the book of Esther. We're going to head in that direction and we're going to start in Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. I'm just going to give you what, what were the verses that I put up there, Colin? Colin's been awesome. Okay, one through eight. Fantastic. I'm going to start at the very beginning of chapter 2. I can tell you that in chapter 1, we have a king. His name is Ahasuerus. Um, you might know him as Xerxes. Uh, Xerxes is a famous uh, king in history, and Ahasuerus is the name that is used here in Esther. It's the same guy. Um, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, uh, had a queen. Her name was Vashti. The queen got totally drunk, and, and it was a party that had lasted for days and days and days, and things were getting totally out of control in the kingdom. And he called Vashti to come and prance around in front of all of his buddies and it says, because she was shapely in form and really nice to look at. I mean, who wants, who wants that call, right? Uh, the king's been drunk for days. He's out there with all of his buddies. And he's now going to just prance his wife around in front of everybody, the queen. And, and he does so to, to just show off her body. It was demeaning. It was... It was immoral, and Vashti says no, and I love the response. It says the seven wise men were like, do you know what is going to happen? Every woman in the kingdom is going to hear about this, and nobody is going to follow their husband anymore. We have got a national emergency. We need to pass laws, and so they do. They pass laws. Vashti's never allowed to see the king ever again, and you've got to think about this from Vashti's perspective. She's like, fantastic. I didn't want to see you anyway. I didn't want to show up anyway. Like, I'm good with this. And so Vashti is kind of moved out of the scene, and then they see that the king is sad. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 2. After these things that happened in chapter 1, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. This is sadness, by the way, in the text. Then the king's young men 
This is different than the seven wise men from chapter 1, by the way. Seven wise men are older, and they give him wise counsel. The seven young men are idiots, and they don't know what they're doing. And so the, the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel city, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. There are two eunuchs that are in charge of the women. One of them is in charge of all the virgins, and one of them, okay, don't be too grossed out here, is in charge of all the women that the king has already slept with. And one... It's called one name, and we'll, we'll get to that just a little bit later. I'll explain it when we get there, but I just want to point this out to you. It, it's nuts. Uh, he's in charge of all the women. Let cosmetics be given to them. This is the command. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and so he did so. Throughout all of the kingdom of Persia, and I probably should... I've at least stuck a map up here to show you it is a vast, gigantic kingdom. Most of the world as we understand the ancient world from what would be modern-day Europe all the way across the Arabian Desert uh, down into Egypt and north into what would be the uh, Yugoslavian area of the world. That entire region belonged to Persia. In every province and every city, they went in. And they found the eligible virgins. Virgins were women that had begun to have their menstrual cycle. So we're talking about very young ladies. Ladies that had not been married. The average age of getting married in the ancient world was around 15 or 16 years old. These are very, very young ladies. It's such a disgusting story. When I was taught the story of Esther when I was a kid, it was on felt boards, and everything was cool. Like, Esther's like, you know, oh, yeah, she ends up in, hanging out with the king, and she marries him. Woohoo! she becomes a queen. And I'm like, this is total sex trafficking right here in the ancient world. And here's where it really gets personal. Now, there was a Jew, verse 5, in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. I just want you to, if you've got your Bible and you can mark in it, just underline that he was a Benjamite. It becomes extremely important later on in the book. Uh, the Benjamite clan is going to have some conflict with a, another group of people, and you don't really see it coming, but the author cleverly drops in right here that, um, that Mordecai is a, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem. In other words, his ancestors had been carried away from Jerusalem uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who carried them away. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Her name, uh, her name was like a, means like a, a white uh, flower, a beautiful white flower or star. So um, it just carries with it, uh, 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 the, her very name carries with it the idea that she was a shining, shining beauty. Um, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, she had lost them. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Again, I, I just, it's a little bit, little bit demeaning. Like, she's, she's a shining star. The, the beauty is that you're going to see her become more than this in the story. Not just a pretty face, in other words. Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Uh, he, he's her uncle, 
of course, and she's, she's his niece, and, and, uh, but he pretty much adopts her because of the age difference and because that was what was most appropriate. And so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, uh, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. You remember, he's a eunuch. It doesn't mean what you might think it means. It just means that she was doing, like she took advantage of the situation that she was in, and she, she was really, really a great member of the harem of virgins. And, and she won uh, Haggai's favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So you see, you see his concern. It's not like he abandoned her. In fact, all of the verbs that are used in Hebrew in this section when it comes to her being taken and Mordecai having to give her over and, and, and her being taken into the harem, uh, they're all passive. In other words, they happened to her. They happened to him. Uh, they did not initiate. It's not like he just ran her out there and said, hey, look, she's cute, um, and, and off she went. Um, these are things that happened to her. I, I read, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll wrote a book, and he mentions Esther, and he talks about her low, her low morals that she gave herself, that she chose to be part of the harem. And I just go, that is the wrong reading of this passage. That's not right. Don't read. Don't listen to that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff is the devil. It's trying to communicate something that I find misogynist and, and is, is, is not appropriate to, what this, to, to the flow of the story and the kind of reversals that God is at work doing. I, I find it offensive because she, she distinguishes herself, but I would call it, I would call what she and Joseph are faced with as being people that are oppressed, not of their own doing. They were oppressed by somebody else. And they decide to take their situation and, and in turning, it, turning their hearts over to the Lord, they become kind of revolutionary, uh, revolutionary in their lives and they do so by the means of submission. So if you put that all together, I would say they are oppressed, revolutionary, submissive individuals in Scripture. I think this is important. I think it's important for me and for you and for us because slowly but surely we live in a country and we live in a world that has turned against Christianity. At one time we just we lived in a nation under God and then it became kind of a just a um, non-Christian country, right? It was just it was kind of neutral, just non. It wasn't pro. It wasn't against, it's in the middle, not. And now it's become anti, right? Now we pass laws that protect the killing of babies. We, live in, we happen to live in the state that is the capital of all of that. Um, we, we live in a place where at some point in the future, probably the tax exemption that our churches enjoy, the tax uh, relief that uh, a lot of pastors enjoy uh, in lieu of parsonages, uh, all of those kinds of things will probably be taken away. 
Now, we would be tempted, right, to call some of these things that are taken away from the church or taken away from the favorite state. We'd be tempted to call these things persecution. But I would encourage you not to, right? That's just because they make you pay more taxes does not mean you're being persecuted. Uh, it just means that you get to be like everybody else. Um, in fact, uh, you know, we, we are reading about two different periods of time, one before Israel is really established after the Exodus, and, and one that is part of the diaspora community when, after Nebuchadnezzar had, had blown up all of Israel and, and exiled the people in two different swaths, and they are over now, um, the kingdom of Babylon has been taken over by the Persian kingdom, and so now we're looking at a, a very late, like probably around 400 years uh, before the time of Christ, uh, we're looking very late in the game uh, at, at another character who is in a, a position of, of exile outside of her own country. And, and uh, as we look at these kind of two bookends, I find that they, they both represent to me kind of an unoppressed, revolutionary submission that they live out. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's, here's what I'm probably getting at. Um, I think one of, the, uh, one of the things that I draw from this story, one of the things that I, that I hear in the midst of this story is that um, we are all put into positions that we don't expect and that, that we can't, we're not totally in control of. Uh, Charles Wesley and John Wesley, actually, uh, both said that um, if you're going to live in a world that is the domain of the devil, and it is a world that is filled with sin, then sin is going to splash on you, like, like mud splattering up against your person. As long as you live in this world, the mud of sin is going to splash you. It's going to get on you. And so how do you live in the midst of that? I would say that, that these two characters show us a very, very interesting way of of living for God in the midst of a very hostile culture. And don't get me wrong. Some of the stuff that they do, you would not be okay with if you were Jewish. It says later on in the chapter, I don't think I put these on the verses. I don't even remember. Uh, in verse 15, it says, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter. I mean, it gets really, really emotional right here. To go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, it's been four years since Vashti was deposed. He's been sleeping with random virgins from around the kingdom for four years this is such a gross story. It should make you kind of ill. In the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set his royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. I'm sure she was super happy. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Um, 
There's a situation that happens to Joseph. Do you remember? He's placed in Potiphar's home. He's Potiphar's second. He's helping out in the house. He's taking care of all the business of the house. And Potiphar's wife tries to get him to sleep with her. She's going to take advantage of his status as a slave, and she's going to turn it into sexual slavery. And he runs away from her. And what happens to him because of that? He gets, he gets thrown in jail, even though Potiphar knows it's his wife. Even though Potiphar is well aware of what's going on. It does not go well for Joseph. And so Joseph goes to jail, and then he meets uh, a cupbearer, and he meets a baker, and he has, they have dreams, and he tells them what their dreams mean. One of you is going to be lifted up. One of you is going to die. Uh, and he says, if you, if you think of me, <coughs> excuse me, if you think of me, uh, get me out of this jail. And do, do you remember what he said? Do you remember why? Because I shouldn't have been thrown in that pit by my brothers in the first place. What would we call that? We would call that resentment over what has happened. Now, do you feel like that's valid? I mean, if you were thrown into a pit by your siblings and sold into slavery by them and then carted off to another country far, far away, would you not be, you know, resentful? Ah, this is where we will be challenged, right? Would you not be resentful if you were Esther and your parents died and then you had to go live with your uncle and as he's raising you and you are coming into your own womanhood, you are given over to the king by his order so that you can be part of the harem that he's in and so that, so that he can sleep with you like he does with all these other women? Would you be at all resentful? Would you be excited about the situation that you were in? It, it reminds me to step away from these stories for just a moment and come over to, I'm going to have you flip over to John, the book of John, chapter 16. John, chapter 16. Do you remember what section this is? John 14, 15, 16? What is that? I see some of you moving your lips. Now use your voice and move your lips. Come on, you can do it. What's this section of the scriptures about? I know you know this. I know you do. The first half of the book of John, 47%, I think, of the book of John is the first three years of Jesus' life. The last 50% of the book of John is just the Passion Week. John was very concerned about the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. And this is the upper room. This is Jesus with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. It starts in, back in chapter 13 and 14 and works its way. And then in chapter 16... Down at verse 32, chapter 16, verse 32, it says, and I think we got this on the screen, yeah, fantastic. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, or in our lingo, you're about to abandon me. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've, see, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, or in the NIV, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 
I think whenever we see a character in Scripture that is in crisis, is in trouble, is in a situation that has begun to grow to a point where they are no longer in control, seemingly, of their fate, even if they walked into it, even if they didn't walk into it, whatever that situation is, we always, always, always should instinctually think, how did Jesus Christ handle this situation? Because the story is not about Joseph. It's not about Esther. It's not about all of these different characters. The story is really God's story. The story's really, at its, at its apex, is really about Jesus. It's about Jesus from the very beginning to the very end, and actually before the very beginning and after the very end. It's all about Christ and what God is doing to bring glory to his name. And so when I think of the trouble that they are facing and the resentment that I personally would feel toward my siblings, towards my situation, I think I have to cut through the circumstances that are going on around me and I have to look at why I am so resentful because I don't deserve to be treated that way. And why do I think that? Why do I think that? Probably because I was raised by parents that loved me, uh, that I grew up with dignity, that I grew up in a situation where I, I felt value. And so there's a certain way that I deserve to be treated. And there are certain ways that I'm, I should not be treated. Now, while there is truth to these things, and there is value in those things, there will be times in your life where the circumstances around you take control. And you are no longer steering your ship. Someone else is. When you're young, it seems like everyone else is steering your ship. And you just can't wait to steer your ship. And then you get to be a teenager, an older teenager, get into college, and suddenly you're steering your own ship, or at least it feels that way. And, and then you get into adulthood, and then you, you, know, you have kids, and you realize they're actually steering my ship. And, and uh, you know, then you get a little bit older, and you're like, I'm happy to have grandkids steer my ship. And uh, you know, so on and so on and so on. Uh, at some point, when we run into obstacles in our lives, is it about the obstacle or is it about the one who allowed that obstacle to occur? Is my anger really at my brothers if I've been thrown into the pit and sold into slavery? I think Joseph thinks so. But who is his anger really with? The God that could have prevented it. There's a hollowness when things go wrong in our lives. And there's a God behind it that we feel ripped off by. That we feel like, I'm not, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't be treated like this. I don't, I don't know why this is happening. And Jesus, while in the midst of those very circumstances, said, I just want you to know that I'm in the midst of those circumstances and you are going to abandon me. But the Father will not. I have the Father in my life. And I'm telling you these things so that when you think back on them, it will give you peace. That you will not be filled with shame because you walked away. But you know that, that God had me in hand all the time. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have, I am, and I will overcome the world. Jesus says. Whenever I think of the oppression that we feel. I believe that some of the most revolutionary ways of living are to be submitted, not to the situations necessarily that we find ourselves in, 
We should probably be offended by those. We should probably be disturbed by those. We should be submitted to whatever God is doing. And we don't have any idea. You do realize just about every story in the scriptures starts with some individual that is called to be faithful and it concludes like six, seven hundred years later, sometimes a thousand years later. Like, if you think that the actions that you're taking today are about you, I can almost guarantee you you're wrong because those stories aren't in the Bible. God doesn't just sew up things in one generation. He's using the whole of history to teach a lesson about his glory, to show us the beauty of a God who loves us so much that when he could have turned us over to our deserved destruction, he did not. Rather, he provided salvation, and he had it in plan from the very beginning. It says, before the beginning, God had all of this already in the counsel of his own heart. I believe that we also, knowing this, knowing that we should expect trouble, knowing that we should expect opposition, knowing that this is the the world that we live in, we should not think in terms of prayers that ask us to get out of situations. Have you ever noticed that Paul only prays that once or twice? And he always prays it because he wants to go teach somebody about Jesus. He's like, I just wish I could get out of jail so I could go to the Macedonians or stuff like that. Um, do you, do you, you see that Paul never, he almost always prays for other people. He, he seldom asks for prayer for himself. He almost always asks for prayer for those that he's jailed with. You know, there was a, 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 when he was taken up to Rome and he was uh, chained to the Roman guards, there was a revival within this Roman centurions of, of Jesus Christ during that same period of time. Is that just coincidental? Of course not. Can you imagine being a pagan and getting chained to the Apostle Paul? You are going to hear about Jesus a whole lot. Paul didn't pray for his circumstances to go away. He prayed that he would honor God and that he would have endurance and that he would find that God's grace was sufficient for him, that he would find power in his weakness. He, he, he prayed that God would do that in the midst of his circumstances. What do you avoid like crazy? What do you pray away? Is it the grandchild that has walked away from the Lord? Maybe it's your own kid, and you're just, you're crushed. For me, I got a call last week while I was in Columbus, Ohio, from my father's doctor. That is not a phone call you want to get. I've never gotten a call from my father, from my father's physician. And he said, your dad is failing, and he's failing hard. He's going downhill, and somebody needs to help him. And he said, you're the only one that, that is close to him to do that. And I already told you how busy my schedule has been, and so it breaks my heart, right? I want to be sitting in my dad's living room tonight. I want to be making sure he's okay. And most of all, I want him to know Jesus. My father does not know Christ. I've gone to reunions that he's had, like with buddies up. He, he used to live in Gilroy up in 
what is now a very rich and very wonderful area uh, up there in uh, near up in the Silicon Valley. Um, but when he grew up there, it was kind of a backwater garlic place, you know, like uh, that kind of stuff. And so he goes up with his buddies from when he was a kid. And they're like, so what does your son do? <laughs> He's a pastor. How the bleep did that happen? You know, that kind of thing. Like, that's, that's his buddies, and they were all military. They were all Navy uh, and, and that kind of thing. My heart breaks for my father. What are your circumstances? What are the circumstances that you find yourself in that are outside of your control? Do you pray them, do you pray them away? Do you hope them away? Do you wish them away? Do you just wait until you can get them away so that you can flourish? Or are we reading stories of people that learned how to flourish in the midst of those circumstances? I, I believe it's the latter, obviously. But I believe that, I, I don't believe Joseph will be released from the imprisonment that he experiences until, until he deals with his resentments, until he embraces his weaknesses, until he says, I got nothing, until he's emptied out and, and God fills him through other means. I don't think Esther, you're going to see here, Esther's been hiding her nationality and, and she's, she's going to be She's going to be called out on that. She's not really not called out in the sense of like, hey, why have you been hiding? But called out in the sense of, hey, you need to not hide anymore. And she is terrified. She does not want to do it. She is not on board. She is like, nope. You know, people die that way. Um, and she's, she kind of just throws up a big stop sign. God's not going to release her from the situation that she's in. And she's not going to release the people that are around her until she comes to terms with her own emptiness until she comes to terms with, with her own heart. I think this leads me to something, too, that I think is important to say, especially during this time, because we're about to hit another election cycle, aren't we? Um, I remember the last election cycle. Wasn't that a blast? Oh, man. I grew up down in South Orange County. I live in Long Beach. Um, I live in a very liberal uh, place now, but I grew up in a very conservative part of, of California. I think maybe the last one, us and Baker, or Orange County and Bakersfield were it. And so, like, I, I just felt like, uh, wow, this last election cycle was just a doozy. And when you pile on top of it all the other stuff that was going on, I mean, it just made for a nightmare, didn't it? Our churches were blown up. Our lives were blown up. So many, like, our friendships were just split apart, people separating over that huge gospel issue of masks, um, and then all of that stuff, right? Like, we were, just, we, were, we, were, we were just getting hammered from every direction. And I, I don't know if you are like me, but I had a lot of friends leave the state and move to Idaho to Texas, to New Mexico, to, and if you're one of those people, fantastic. Um, I want to reiterate, though, <laughs> that the story says that the best place for God's people to be is right there in the middle of where all the most sinful people are. Don't seek to be released from your circumstances, I beg of you. God 
is looking for people that will flourish in the midst of their circumstances, that will show and have the sophistication and the nuance to be able to speak into a culture that is dying and is desperate without Jesus. And they keep finding different things on the internet to throw in to the hole that God has placed in their lives. And you and I know nothing solves that except for Jesus. For the few summer staffers that are in here, like I said this morning, nothing will solve the hole that you will feel from losing the community that you've had when you were up here than Jesus and finding the new community that he's calling you into. Nothing. I've seen so many people lose their spouse and they are on a holy mission to find a new husband or a new wife. Pause. Breathe. Don't rush. Allow God to be in the midst of your circumstances and allow God to bring flourishing to your circumstances before you make a decision that you might regret, like moving to horrible Texas. Um, No, no. It's a wonderful nation down there. Um, Henry Nowen, I, I mentioned him this morning a little bit. He says, one of the main tasks of theology is to find words which unite and don't divide us. Words not designed for conflict, but for unity. That do not hurt, but bring healing. Now, of course, now one worked in a uh, home for the mentally handicapped, and, and he learned a lot. He had degrees from Yale. Uh, he had studied at Harvard. I mean, he, he was one of the most educated guys on the planet, and and he hung it all up, all of his academic and all of his accolades. He hung it all up so that he could work with the mentally handicapped. And he said as he, as he worked with the mentally handicapped, he would look at them and he would think about all of the studying he's done and all of the knowledge that he had in his head and all of the things that God had taught him and that this person across from him didn't care at all. All they cared about was whether or not he could give them red jello. That's really all they cared about, was that Henry could give them red jello each night. And if he didn't, they were mad at him. And if he did, they were happy. He said he, he learned so much about how important it is to use the words that come out of our mouths to bring peace and bring hope, and to bring life to those that are around us. I can't help but think of, and you probably, those of you that are uh, familiar with the verse, uh, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting can be a little weird for us to wrap our head around. It's talking about words that tear other people down. That's what it means. Uh, In other words, uh, we don't really use this word, but um, don't use words that deconstruct. Right, and then the next verse, or in the next part of the verse, it says, "But only such." Sorry, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for what building up. And it's a word that literally means constructing a house, building up, 
as fits the occasion. Oh, okay, now we're going to get more specific. It's not just a building upward. It, you have to listen for what is needed so that you can use words that are fit for the occasion that it may give grace, the undeserved, connecting them to the undeserved love of God, the undeserved wonder of the Creator, providing that with your words in the midst of their lives. When I look at Esther and I look at Joseph and I look at the situations that they were forced into, I, I find that some of their decisions... Like they had to eat food that wasn't kosher. They had to live in kingdoms that, that, that hated God. They probably had to participate in things that were very godless and even anti-God, especially Esther as, as being part of a harem, uh, a harem that, by the way, was trained for, I think it was like 12, 18 months for her night with the king. Blech. Uh, she was trained. Uh, painted with cosmetics. That, and, and when it says that, those were not like, you know, L'Oreal. That, we're talking about cosmetics that didn't come off. They, she was tattooed with things, and, and she was beautified with things. That There's even uh, stories from that time period of women sitting around smoking, smoking pots of incense. Like, re- they didn't have like what you and I have, like a little perfume in a squirt bottle. And so um, they would sit around these smoking pots of incense and it would soak into their bodies so that they would smell aromatic for the king. The whole thing is kind of disgusting. But she, she spent all that time doing something that if, if you thought, like, what am I doing here? Why, why am I in this situation consistently? Consistently, in the midst of oppression, she lives a life that is increasingly revolutionary and is submitted to God and sometimes even submitted to those that are around her. You know what it makes me think of? There's different ways that people work out their Christianity. Some people are really, really fired up, and they're going to stand up on street corners, and they're going to wave flags for their candidate, and they're going to go crazy over politics, and they're going to, they're going to just be out there with who their, their personalities are that way, and they're going to be loud, and they're going to be boisterous, and they're going to be abrasive on purpose, and they are going to make a big deal out of whatever it is that they think. And then there's going to be other people that are just going to, you know, hide it under a bushel. Yes, <laughs> you know, they're the opposite of what, you know, you think they should be doing. Uh, but how many of us would say to Chinese, Chinese house church people that are Christians, you know what, you should really stand up for your faith. You should really get out there and, and, and make more of a stand for Jesus in front of your government. Are you crazy? I don't think you'd say that. If you understood the difficulty, the death, the persecution, and the destruction that those Christians are under. We live in a country where we're always encouraged, don't hide your Christianity. But there are other Christians that hide their Christianity, and it's totally legit. What do I mean by all of this? There's different ways that people work this stuff out. And I think, I think we should be gracious. I think that 
we should use words that bring peace. I think that when we see characters like Joseph and Esther and the things that they face and the things that they must have had to do and the, the, the sacrifices that they make and even the compromises that they make, we, we, have, to, we have to believe that if we are going to live in an oppressed society that people are going to work it out in different ways and we have to be supportive of one another. We need to be the church, not seeking to divide over words and over politics and over masks and over racial issues and over whatever else comes along next, but being exceedingly gracious in your heart and speaking grace with your mouths. 1 Peter chapter 1 probably my favorite set of verses during COVID. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I mean, this is so wonderful to read now that we are post-COVID, post all of those things. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Do you, did you see that? There it is. That's that passive thing that I was talking about earlier. You didn't choose it. God chose you. You were chosen by God, not by work that you have done, it says in Ephesians, but by work that he has done, or in this verse, he has caused you to be born again. He made it happen in your life to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. I mean, you read that, and you should be pumped. You should be fired up. This is all about your identity in Christ. It's about what he has done for us. It's about how it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's, uh, it has everything to do with him and how he died, was raised. And, and in the power of the resurrection, you are sealed and set aside for salvation. And that salvation will be completed at the end times. In this you rejoice. The word rejoice right there is not the normal word that is used for rejoice in the New Testament. It's a word that means to like bask in the sun. I live in Southern California. I love being out in the sun. I golf a couple times a week. I love the sun. I'm probably going to get cancer, but I love the sun. I love the sun on my face. I love standing outside and reminding myself, no matter what's happening in the world, the sun is up. God is good. And I just, I just bask in it. I rejoice in it. I love the feeling of the warmth of the sun on my face. That's what this word means. The, worst, the word means to rejoice, to exult, to bask in the joy of something. In these things, in this identity that you have in Christ, verses 3 through 5, in this you rejoice, you bask, you glory, you exult. Though, now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. By various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You are his gift that he is coming for in the end. You are the jewel that he is refining, that he is polishing, that he is putting beautiful facets on, which means he has to cut away stuff. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you bask, you exult, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
obey God because of opposition, when you find yourself in, an, in a situation where you're, you're, you're experiencing opposition, that opposition might even be yourself. It might just be that life is sloppy and you're caught in it and you just are generally a mess. Obey in the midst of these things. Find flourishing in the midst of these things. God's got you right where he wants you. If he caused your salvation, he has allowed the circumstances that you are in, and he calls on you to bask in his glory in the midst of them. Rejoice because of Christ, not in spite of persecution. Don't be just looking to really rejoice in Christ. When you get out of situations, be the person that rejoices in Christ. Be the person that uses words that bring grace and healing. Be the person that knows that no matter what this world throws at you, Jesus Christ is overcoming it. And you can trust him. And if you do, I think you'll find him to be trustworthy. Let's pray. God, thank you for some time in the word. Thank you for the way that you have woven ancient stories to reveal your son, Jesus. I pray that it would be each one of our instincts to read the stories of the Old Testament and to discover more about you. That, God, we would find the gospel everywhere we look. That, God, you would train us to find the gospel even in the midst of our everyday lives. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our wonderful King. Amen. Art.